organizing. She is a former legislative staff person to three members of the California legislature and has served in the public and private sector as a legislative advocate on a range of subjects, including criminal justice reform, health care, welfare reform, and environmental public policy. She is a restorative justice expert and lecturer with over 20 years' experience at the state, national, and international levels, with special expertise working with crime victims. Lisa worked for two national organizations promoting systemic criminal justice reform as a legislative advocate and and also as a policy strategist. In 1998, she directed one of the first intensive in-prison restorative justice projects in the U.S., inside a Texas medium security prison. In 2001, she founded the Justice and Reconciliation Project, a national nonprofit seeking to educate and organize victims of violent crime around the benefits of restorative justice. She is the president of Restorative Justice International, RJI, an international association and network founded in 2009 through social media, at LinkedIn.com, with over 3,700 members and affiliate members globally working for victims-driven restorative justice. Ms. Ray is president, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> she's president of Ray Consulting, based in California, providing government relations, online grassroots organizing, media relations, and restorative justice consulting guidance. I just want to throw out there that you can um, find out more about Restorative Justice International by going to restorativejusticeinternational.com. And also, I would highly recommend that you check out justiceandreconciliation.com. That's the website for the Justice and Reconciliation Project. And also, a thanks to the Peace Alliance for its support of this programming. We go live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Eastern. This is Community Justice Talks on your community radio station, khen.org, streaming online, 106.9 FM on the dial. So without further ado, let's, let's bring Lisa into this conversation. And like I was saying in our green room, Lisa, um, this is uh, a conversation long past due on this show, and it's just a great honor to have you here with us today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm glad to meet you, too, and finally be on the show. Yeah, it's great to have you, and I know we have a, a hefty topic to cover today, and you have so much experience, um, combined experience of pretty much your entire lifetime, uh, and I just, of course, read uh, the, that impressive bio. I, I wondered if, if you could... <laughs> I wondered if you might start out for us. Um, it's always neat to hear why people come into this field. Why do you do the work that you do? All right, that's a good question. Yeah, I get asked that often. Well, I um, like you read, I have a legislative background here in California, and I've always been interested in civil rights and, and active on civil rights, rights issues. Um, but I had never heard of restorative justice, and I actually heard it um, heard Chuck Colson on the radio um, in the late 80s in Los Angeles, and I heard him talk about um, the organization that he founded, Prison Fellowship. Uh, but then he mentioned restorative justice, and I remember driving in my car and turning it up a little, going, "What is that?" And never heard of it. And he talked about the need for um, criminal justice reform, and that uh, restorative justice was something that. Um, was uh, it, it focuses the, it focuses the attention 
on victims and how victims are injured by crime and how we need a system that holds offenders accountable in ways that restore victims. Mm -hmm. So that was really how I first got into it is that through um, Chuck Colson, I was um, hired to be the State Director of Justice Fellowship, which is a sister group of prison fellowship. And I ended up taking that job in the, the early, well, the late ni- late 80s in California. Wonderful. And I've, I just have so much respect for all those organizations and have really enjoyed in the past speaking with um, people like Lynette Parker and, oh, yeah. and others right. who represent that organization. Um, just to, to mention to our listeners, whether you're streaming online or tuned in on the dial, if you aren't able to catch the full conversation today, it will be podcast. So you can check us back at cahan.org, um, and Lisa will have the podcast as well, and also at restorativejusticeontherise.org. So all those places have archives, and you can get those on iTunes or free streaming right directly on the website. So Lisa, you've, you've framed us um, how you got into this work, um, but... But could you share with us, for those uh, those who are listening, what is restorative justice and what is it not? Right, right. Um, well, let me just preface it by saying I, I worked with both offenders and with victims. And uh, that's really critical in, in having a perspective on, on restorative justice and what it is. And I always talk about it in terms of it being a vision for the criminal justice system. So it's a set of principles, restorative justice is a set of principles that says what I stated earlier, that crime is a crime against a victim. And we need to hold offenders accountable in ways that restore victims and communities. And um, that's what restorative justice is. It's real, it's basic um, in a sense. Um, Some, I think, make it too complicated. Um, But it really is about healing uh, victims and communities after crime um, healing as much as possible, um, restoration of victims and communities after crime, but holding offenders accountable in ways that that uh, teach that crime is not a crime against the state. Mm-hmm. It's against a real victim. How does an offender make things right with his victim? Mm-hmm. And that's what restorative justice asks, and it says we can do a better job. Now, uh, I'm guessing that there's quite a few misconceptions about restorative justice. Could you share with us some of the primary ones that, that you've, I mean, I know you've even written extensively about some of them, but right. outline those for us, if you would, right. please. Um, and, yeah, on our, on our website at Restorative Justice International, on our blog, there are a number of articles that I've written and others have, too. But, yeah, there's, um, there's some confusion about what it is and what it's not. And since I've been doing this for 20 years, you can imagine I've, um, the way I do my work is very different than when I st- first started in this field in 1992. Um, but some think, I think nationally and even around the world, that um, all criminal justice reform is restorative justice. And um, I'm often having to kind of counter that opinion by saying, no, not all criminal justice reform, not all prison reform is restorative justice. If the victim is not involved on some level, then it's probably not restorative justice. Victims have to be included as much as possible. They need to be a part of the system because they're the ones who have suffered the injury. Mm-hmm. So, again, uh, it's not that um, some of the um, reforms that you hear about that are being suggested around the country and even around the world um, are needed. 
um, uh, when we're looking at criminal justice reform. But if the victim's not involved, it is not restorative justice. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point and um, ties into perhaps uh, the topic of forgiveness. Let's talk about that for a bit. Um, is it a misconception, first of all, that do, do people think that restorative justice is about forgiveness? Right. Um, I think I think they do. Um, uh, they, you know, there are so many organizations uh, around the United States and, and globally that are doing restorative justice work, um, and there are organizations that are doing work and um, on the subject of forgiveness. And yes, there is a tie-in. There can be a tie-in between restorative justice practices and forgiveness. Um, when a, a, a victim and offender meet through victim-offender dialogue. Um, that's when they actually sit down, a victim and the offender meets, usually with a trained uh, facilitator, mediator. Then through that process, um, through the offender taking responsibility for his actions, showing remorse after crime, uh, a victim might get to a place, maybe quickly, maybe later down the road, maybe years later, where that victim chooses to forgive. However, restorative justice is not synonymous with forgiveness. It doesn't absolutely happen. It should never be something that is um, urged. Victims of violent crime should not be urged or coaxed towards forgiveness. That's, that's a very personal decision. Now, uh, I work with a lot of victims of violent crime who have forgiven their offenders. But again, that's a, that's a, um, a step that they take that's personal and something that can come from restorative justice practices. And again, victim-offender dialogue, which I just mentioned, I always call that the gold standard. Mm-hmm. That's the gold standard of restorative justice. I, it really is the purest form of it. Mm-hmm. Now, Lisa, are there other ways besides direct dialogue to embark on a restorative process, even when a victim may feel not quite ready to do anything um, you know, do anything very directly, like you're just describing with dialogue? Are there other right, ways? Right, right. Well, as you um, um, read early on about my bio, I, I actually directed an in-prison victim-offender project in the state of Texas in 1998, and it was through Prison Fellowship International. Now, that program brought victims and offenders together in custody. It was in a medium-security prison um, outside of Houston, and it was surrogates. They were surrogate victims, surrogate offenders, which means that they, um, they're real victims of, of crime, real offenders, but unrelated cases. So this program actually um, was a eight, eight to ten week, I think my um, version, my pilot was eight weeks, but it was um, a very intensive, interactive um, program that allowed victims and offenders to meet in small groups. Mm-hmm. And um, it, they uh, met each other, and victims and offenders rarely meet. Um, and to even know, for an offender to know a victim of violent crime uh, personally, especially if they've never met their own, um, is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And also for uh, victims to meet offenders and realize that um, they're real people. And um, and they you know what could they learn from offenders that they met as they you know came into the the prison and the the focus of the program the purpose was to expose offenders to the pain um, that uh, victims go through when they are victimized mm-hmm. so it um, so that yeah that's one um, one process that we really um, support strongly encourage this type of approach um, in custody uh, victim offender 
programs or restorative justice programs. And um, there are a number of programs like this around the country. Um, we, we think RJI, my organization, we really believe that we're backwards in our approach, that we need many more um, programs like this um, in both prison and in jail mm-hmm. um, because what it does is the offender then um, considers the impact um, his crime has had on victims and it also stimulates an interest in maybe one day being able to take responsibility for their own crimes. And same with victims. Actually, victims through programs like this, um, then they decide that, gee, maybe do I want to meet my offender? Could I meet my offender? So it stimulates that interest, which we think is very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for describing the surrogate program. That it sounds like a really powerful alternative uh, of sorts to a direct meeting with with one's own offender. Um, can you tell us just a little bit more about um, what you've seen on the victim end of things, for, either for a surrogate process or for um, direct dialogue? What 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 have you witnessed? What happens? Right. Well, I think... Um you know, my background, like I said, in the last uh, 10 years, I've worked increasingly with victims of violent crime. And what I'm finding just nationally and, and globally, that victims of violent crime are hungry for restorative justice. Um, often you don't think that they would support it necessarily, um, or le- it, let's put it this way, not um, that they... Now, generally, when they hear about it and they hear about the value, they're interested. But what we're finding is that they're really hungry for it because... The current um, criminal justice system, uh, whether in the U.S. or anywhere on the globe, uh, we're not meeting the needs of victims of crime. And so victims are telling us they want more um, from the justice system. And, and I, I mean, I can, there are many stories actually up on our website um, under the blog, um, the blog uh, area of the site. But I, I can tell you one story of a um, state trooper in Wyoming. His name is Steve Watt. And he's a, a former state trooper. He was shot five times, um, in, um, both in his eye, through an, uh, one eye, and through his back, uh, while he was actually um, on duty and uh, he was uh, tracking down a bank robber. And so this this very violent altercation took place. And um, and Steve, uh, at that time, um, was so he he almost died. He should have died, but he didn't. And, uh, and after going through this, he, he had to actually um, turn in his badge because he could no longer practice um, uh, and he could no longer be in the field that he chose. But what he found is that he was so angry at the offender um, that mm-hmm. he, he actually told me he wanted to kill him um, because what he did to his life, he destroyed his life. Um, but then he came to a place where he wanted to meet him. And it was a really remarkable story that he tells. And I've met him, um, like I said, about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And he, he met the offender. The offender took full responsibility for what he did. And Steve, in his case, did forgive the offender. And it made all the difference in the world. He said that it, it's freed him to move on with his life. And uh, as much as possible, my organization tries to tell the stories of victims like Steve um, mm-hmm. who have a story to tell mm-hmm. um, because of restorative justice, because of that direct meeting he had with the offender, he was able to move on. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he says today that the justice system is completely out of whack, 
um, that it does nothing for victims of crime, and it does um, very little for offenders. But restorative justice can can change that, and and that's just one story. Wow, that's such a powerful story. Thank you. In in fact, I think perhaps his story has been in documentary form, hasn't it? Yes, it has. That's right. Um, it has. Yeah. And, um, as much as possible, we try to get his story out. And, yeah, uh-huh. there's a, a documentary that was made on him, and uh, there are a couple articles on our site. But, yeah, you know, he's. some would say, oh, well, that's extreme. Well, violent crime can be extreme. What's unusual is that he was a police officer, a state trooper, um, and he experienced this. But also um, he, he currently is a state legislator in Wyoming, and uh, he's a Republican, and uh, he's a law and order guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I met him and sat down with him and talked about um, the value of restorative justice to him, he just he just couldn't say enough about it, mm-hmm. and saying we need this in our system. Mm-hmm. And I think he should know. Excellent. Well, that's a great uh, framework for the next part of our show today. This is Community Justice Talks. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Lisa Ray, the president of Restorative Justice International and also uh, the founder of the Justice and Reconciliation Project. You can find more out about that project, justiceandreconciliation.com and also restorativejusticeinternational.com. So, Lisa, we came here today with the idea that we really wanted to get nitty-gritty with current events um, for part of this conversation, and I'd like to dive into that now, if that's all right with you. Um, the, about the state of American justice, really, and um, what can we do about it, and what we might, what you might already see being done about it. Um, for example, uh, I'd love to hear from you ideas as to how we might respond to the recent. Um, heightening of, of extreme violence in this country, the shootings, the police brutality, um, anything that you'd like to, to bring up in addition to that, how we might respond restoratively, as well as how we might prevent uh, these things happening in the future. Right. Well, um, first of all, let me, let me just point out one thing. You mentioned um, the Justice and Reconciliation Project. I am the founder of that group. That group is actually no longer. So that, <laughs> that site you mentioned, we're not, we're not in operation any, anymore. Oh, but okay, that's how you. Restorative Justice International came well, about. Well, it looks actually. like such a great project. Kind of morphed. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I appreciate the fact that you had Van Jones on the air. I actually wasn't able to, to listen to his interview, but I want to. Um, uh, you know, just like all Americans, um, I think we've all, we're all kind of numb um, to what's occurred um, just actually over many months since Ferguson, Missouri, and the case of um, Eric Brown um, or Michael Brown. You know, it, it, I think we're just all trying to figure out what, where do we go from here. Um, it, somebody like myself who works in the, the field of of criminal justice reform, which is what restorative justice is. And, and I always point that out to people. If they don't see that restorative justice is about systemic reform, they're missing something. Because restorative justice is much more than victim-offender dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's much more than that. It's about looking at the criminal justice system and saying it's broken. I was recently giving an award to somebody 
in California for restorative justice. And when I introduced the individual, I said I started with the comment, "The criminal justice system is broken." And he, when he got the award, he said, "That's hard to hear." And it's yes, it's hard to hear, <laughs> but but you have to point these facts out. Um, since I've been working in this field for 20 years, I've seen how broken it is. It's broken from the standpoint of the offender, and it's broken from the standpoint of the victim in the community. So how do we respond? And, and when we, we see um, what we've learned to be true, which is nothing new, but when we see racism in our justice system, how do we respond to that? How can we respond in a way that can um, uh, change the system and, uh, and provide real justice for those who are injured? Um, and those are the questions we need to ask right now. And, you know, I, I, I don't have all wisdom <laughs> like no one does right now when we're looking at the case of, of uh, Brown and Ferguson and Garner um, in New York. Um, but we know when something's wrong, and we know when we need to focus on change. And I think right now, more than any time in our history, we need to respond to the brokenness of the criminal justice system. We know, as I know that you've, I'm sure you've um, covered these, these issues before on your radio show, we're incarcerating, incarcerating way too many people in this country. And, and not only is this country doing that, but it's happening around the world. So how can we do that differently? Um, in the case of, of um, Eric Garner uh, in Staten Island, you have to wonder why is it that five officers we're trying to arrest a man for selling cigarettes. Why was that? Um, in a restorative justice system, in a, in a, in, uh, you know, if we, if we were a system based on restorative justice, you would not be doing what you did. You know, the officers wouldn't have been there arresting him um, for, that, for that offense. Now, if he had been stealing, if he had been selling smuggled um, cigarettes, that's an offense. Okay, so how do we hold him accountable for that? Um, and there's ways of doing that. We, you know, obviously, any, you know, what happened in New York was extreme. I mean, that he was um, taken down, uh, that uh, the chokehold was used on him, and he died. Uh, and again, well, how, <laughs> something's wrong with this picture because that was a nonviolent offense. Mm -hmm. And with restorative justice, part of um, what we need to see is that how. It's a question of how can we respond to crime in a way that's appropriate. So nonviolent offenses can um, also, uh, we can respond in a way that applies restorative justice that holds that offender accountable for the offense in ways that restores the victim and the community. Mm -hmm. So, again, it could, it could have been applied in New York. Was it? No, it wasn't. Um, uh, in the case of um, uh, Michael Brown in Missouri, um, it's a, it's difficult to see what happened in that um, squad car. Um, there was obviously an altercation. I wasn't there. I don't know all the facts, probably as many as those that are listening. But we can read in the transcripts, and something went wrong. And, uh, um, again, uh, you know, could it have been handled differently? I think so. I think so, um, where uh, Brown would still be alive today. But again, we always have to look through the, the lens of uh, restorative justice that says crime is a crime against a victim and the community. How do, can we respond in ways that hold offenders accountable um, and restore victims and restore communities after crime? 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think a lot of our, our listeners are wondering is, does restorative justice aim to try and walk in and say, we want you to do this to police officers, to corrections officials, judges, and to our existing criminal justice system? Um, could you comment on that and, and share what, what's really happening with restorative justice and communities working together? Now, um, can you rephrase that again? Um, I, what, what I'm trying to um, get at is, does restorative justice want to walk into the existing system and try and take it over? Or, uh, on the other hand, is it attempting to work together with those that are working within the system already? Right, right. And that's a, that's a debate that does occur inside the restorative justice community. Um, and I always refer also to the, the uh, restorative justice being a movement, which it is. Um, so there's a debate that some um, struggle with that, whether it should replace the existing system. But generally, those who work in the field um, conclude that that's, you know, we're trying to work with the existing mm-hmm. system, not replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's more of an extreme position to suggest replacing it right. fully. But um, but it's really um, it's it's trying to um, change the paradigm. Uh, that's what Howard Zare, who's a uh, international leader in restorative, restorative justice, talks about. Mm-hmm. The fact we need to change our lenses and mm-hmm. when we look at crime, mm-hmm. and again, that crime's not a crime against the state; it's a crime against a real victim. So how do how do we change how we respond to crime? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's working with those. Um, who want to change the system, who acknowledge that something's wrong and that victims are left out and offenders aren't held accountable. And, and often offenders, um, they, they um, come back into the system, uh, they have not changed because a lot of the programming, um, even rehabilitation-type programming that we have, that it doesn't really get to the root causes mm-hmm. of crime and why um, offenders do what they do and, and why they come back, why they uh, commit new crimes. So, so, but anyway, I mean, in responding to your question, yeah, it's working with the existing system. And, uh, you know, what, what we see um, around the country now is that there are a lot of community-based organizations that do restorative justice work. I know they're in Colorado um, you've got um, a lot of really good um, organizations in place, and as uh, well as a new law, Pete Lee, right, is doing wonderful work. Absolutely, I just wanted to say, as well as a new law, which is called yes. the Restorative Justice Pilot Project. Yes, yes, and and let me point something else out too. And this is we're not talking about um, uh, outside the country, but because. You know, that's the work that we do at RGI. In, in England right now, um, they're doing some incredible work in restorative justice. Uh, they've actually made a, the Ministry of Justice, their government, has made a commitment um, to making restorative justice a reality in their system. Um, so they are trying all kinds of things across their country to make it work. And uh, the government has, has pledged a lot of money. Um, to um, to test restorative justice, to make sure that it's uh, victims driven and victim centered, something that we care a lot about. And and so I and I have to praise them. And you know, around the world, that's what's so powerful about restorative justice in this movement is that you don't need to just look around and say, well, where is this happening in the U.S. or where is this is happening in my state? It's happening around the world, and we mm-hmm. can learn from others that are doing it. Mm. Excellent. I'm so glad you brought up the, the global aspect of the movement. That's really appreciated. 
Um, I'd, I'd like to go back for a moment to the Eric Garner case in New York and what it what it spurred on in um, De Blasio, uh, his his interest in funding police trainings, and ask you the question: If you were to implement police trainings in a different way, what tools would you include and what what types of trainings do you think would be important? And certainly by bringing this up, I'm not saying that it's only um, police trainings that we need to be looking at here. It's about a lot more than that, obviously, as we've been discussing today. Right. All right. Well, one example of restorative justice at work is community policing something that was um, uh, supported by um, President Bill Clinton when he was in office. Now, um, it's been very successful where community policing is uh, implemented, and you, know, you have to ask, well, why aren't we doing that? And that's really more cops on the street. Yes, it's more, more police officers on the street, but they're more involved in, they're walking around, they're more involved in the community. It, it, um, it helps um, uh, avoid the problem of us versus them, which I think is a real um, problem in Staten Island, from what I've read, and also in, in um, Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be one very important um, component is the idea of community policing. Uh, but also there has to be a better, um, you know, as, as I'm sure you've already discussed in other, other um, shows that you've done, um, the, we have to have better training of police officers. Um, you know, do they have, um, do they have, oh, I don't know, it's, it's hard, you know, no, I mentioned Steve Watt, who is, who's a state trooper, mm-hmm. and, you know, we learn a lot when we get to know police officers right. or former police officers. It's not an easy job, right. and uh, it's, um, you know, in the moment when, when crime occurs and there's, um, you know, there's a lot of passion, um, but there's fear. And, um, and right. uh, mistakes can happen. So how do we make sure that we prepare officers um, when they're in that situation? But also, how can they de-escalate um, a situation that's mm-hmm. out of hand? I think when we look at those two cases, um, that didn't happen. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, that's where the training comes in, where it has to be better training. Um, also, the um, officers, I, I think, need to work um, more with victims. They need to know what it's like to be a victim of violent crime, and uh, they need to, I think they need to be trained in restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, just as my friend Steve Watt has said, um, it, he thinks it's needed, um, and that's in the macro and in the mm-hmm. micro. So, speaking um, so for police officers on the beat um, to be exposed to what restorative justice is and the idea that how do you, um, how do you restore peace after crimes occurred, but in a way that um, that builds community and uh, that builds trust. I mean, clearly what we don't have in many places in this country is, is uh, trust, trust in police, trust in law enforcement. And I think that's what we're seeing with the protests and, uh, around the country is that there is a lack of trust. It's, it's not only with the criminal justice system itself, but it's with law enforcement. And there's some, we need to do more to replace that trust. And, and again, the idea of restorative justice, what it is, um, and how um, it shouldn't be us versus them. And mm-hmm. how do we build back trust? And mm-hmm. I think restorative justice is a, a key ingredient there. How do you feel about uh, 
police trainings, including the possibility of, for example, the tool of nonviolent communication and perhaps some training as to how to work with um, and de-escalate, as you said, uh, mental health cases, which, you know, obviously... Yes, that's very, very important. Um, And, you know, that's always an area that's um, not well-funded, as we know. I assume that's probably true in your state. I know here in, in California is true. Um, but we don't put a lot of monies into how we respond to the mentally ill. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's real key. And what is the what, what about the aspect of listening? Do we need to work on our, our understanding of what listening really means and what understanding really means, not just in, as a police force but as, as communities who have lost trust in each other and in our police and, and vice versa? Right. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I mean, that's certainly something that's uh, reflective in restorative justice. I mean, we need to be able to um, hear each other. Um, we need to um, be able to um, see each other as human beings and um, uh, worthy of respect. Um, I mean, I think what's what's been missing is respect um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, law enforcement and those they serve. Um, now, you know, again, I, it's, I think we can um, be too critical of law enforcement. We have to be careful there because they are doing a job that's difficult. Right. Um, but, but, yeah, sensitivity training in ways that um, build support um, and, or not support trust is really, really important. Well, I know that um, in my conversation this past summer with Chief Bob Richardson from the Battleground Washington Police Department, uh, he was sharing his ideas on how um, police trainings, you know, given the fact that we we have so much respect for our police force and our officers, um, and what are ways that we can improve uh, before things escalate, before things get violent, mm-hmm. um, in the at the training level, you know, catching right. it upstream. Right. And also, though, at the same time, um, we know uh, we know either by experience or through just educating ourselves that they're bad apples. Right. And, um, right. and so when um, such an officer is found, that person should be removed from the police force. Right. And, uh, and that's about accountability. Um, uh, that's something that's, again, restorative justice is about accountability. Now, um, I've been, well, let me just mention this. One issue that um, we care a great deal about at Restorative Justice International is wrongful convictions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the concept of offender accountability. Well, if you have the wrong person in prison, how do you hold the offender accountable? Uh, because I work with um, those who have been exonerated. Um, uh, and we're serving time, sometimes on death row, for crimes they didn't commit. Well, what do you, how does restorative justice apply there? And again, you know, remembering that restorative justice is about systemic justice um, change, justice reform. Uh, restorative justice does apply there because if you have the wrong pris- um, person in prison, we need to find the right perpetrator. And that's about offender accountability. Hold the real offender accountable. Make sure that the victim or family is restored as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So just the whole concept of, of accountability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Underscore that for sure. Well, Lisa, we have about five minutes left of this live conversation. Uh, again, if you're joining us, uh, welcome to Community Justice Talks. We've been talking with 
Lisa Ray, who is the president of Restorative Justice International. And Lisa, I'm wondering if you would like to wrap up with anything in particular and or include perhaps an example of, of, of what a restorative process looks like, like a, a circle process or something of sort that you'd like to share with us, just to give people an even deeper idea of what it really looks like on the ground. And, of course, your closing comments are welcome. <laughs> It's been a great honor so having you. I'm stories. so glad. I'm so glad to have you today. Oh, so. thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, there's so many stories of victim and offenders that have come together, and um, where where they've made things right, where restoration did occur between a victim and offender. And you know, those cases. There are cases again on our blog that people should read. Um, and so I, you know, I told you one story of, of Steve Watt and. Um, in Wyoming, but there's so many. I'm not sure I even want to bring one up. But but in terms of the context of of the unrest that's happening around the country um, and people feeling that um, something's really radically wrong with the justice system, we need to work towards restorative justice. And what I'm finding is that um, policymakers need to get more um, active in this in this field. They need to write legislation. Um, that brings it into their system both on the state level and nationally. We need that now. We, we need a president that fully supports it to say this is, this is needed, um, this is balanced. It's a balanced response to a, a broken system and that puts victims first but in ways that, um, again, is, is appropriate and holds offenders accountable in ways that change their lives. And so I just, you know, my, my kind of hope and commitment and passion is towards seeing this become a reality in the United States. And, and uh, you know, when, when we hear right now nationally, um, you know, all these protests that you hear about that are happening around the country, what's going to com- uh, come from those protests? Um, are we focused on a solution? And, and I really believe the solution is restorative justice uh, because it can be applied throughout the justice system and ways that is is balanced and that is truly just. Um, so that's kind of my call to action. And 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 we do need to um, we need to make sure that we get the right people in government. You need to elect mm-hmm. people that support it. And if if they don't, they shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a serious problem that we have in our justice system that affects millions of people in the United States. And we need to change it. We need to change it. And restorative justice is that answer. So. Um, also, I, as you said, Molly, at the beginning, that people can go to our website at restorativejusticeinternational.com, and we're very active at, link, at LinkedIn, and they can actually join our conversation there online as well. Oh, wonderful. Well, it's just been an honor to have you here with us today. We've been talking with Lisa Ray of Restorative Justice International. You can find a lot of great information from Lisa online, as she just mentioned, restorativejusticeinternational.com, as well as uh, a litany of great articles and blogs. And uh, check out Restorative Justice International at LinkedIn as well. They have, as she just mentioned, a very active um, dialogue forum there. So once again, it's been my pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And don't forget, everyone who's listening in, if you want to pass this dialogue on, it's going to become a podcast format here shortly in the next 24 hours, posted at khen.org. 
That's khen.org. We are your community radio station, and this is Community Justice Talks. I'm your host, Molly Rowan-Leach, and just want to throw in here that the views expressed on Community Justice Talks are those of myself and or my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the KHEN staff, volunteers, underwriters, or board of directors. I also would like to point you in the direction of restorativejusticeontherise.org, for this archive, as well as archives from over the last three and a half years of the